across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham, on Talk Radio. Welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham, right here on Talk Radio. We are still at the fork in the road, ladies and gentlemen. Yesterday, I explained how Prime Minister Boris Johnson is at the most crucial stage of his leadership thus far, as the number of coronavirus deaths continues to plummet, and as the number of hospital admissions continues to decline, doctors are now warning of the terrible toll this lockdown is causing to patients suffering from other ailments, like cancer, like diabetes, like lung disease, and various heart conditions as well. Now is the time for the Prime Minister to take a very firm grip of the tiller, and steer the country in the right direction towards a healthy new prosperity. Surely he can see that. And if it requires him to start ignoring the doom mongers inside the offices of the Chief Medical Officer Chris Whitty, then so be it. I'm not sure, uh, however, uh, he has the intestinal fortitude for such a task. Meanwhile this morning, yet another voice has been heard from. It is Anne Longfield, the Children's Commissioner from England and Wales, who says... <coughs> Excuse me. that the opening of schools is so important that it should be prioritised over shops and pubs. And I'm not even sure why there is any connection between the two things. But this is the same woman who sacked her deputy, then rehired her as a consultant, and was then forced to cancel the arrangement and repay £10,000 of public funds. So, quite why we would listen to her is anyone's guess. We'll get some guidance from the Independence Chief Political Commentator, John Rental. 0344 499 Coming up later on, we will also bring you the latest from the Serco scandal. We've discovered yet another hotel that's being used to house illegal immigrants and we've asked the company some more questions this morning so we'll see uh, how they try and wriggle out of answering those 0344 499 also historian and archaeologist Neil Oliver joins us today to give us his take on the week so far and we'll be taking your calls as ever because you are our eyes and ears and this is the only place where your views are actually taken seriously and listened to uh, reject all substitutes do not go anywhere stay with talk radio for the next three hours because this i'm telling you is going to be one hell of a ride you are listening to me mike graham on the fastest growing radio station on the planet it is of course talk radio mid-morning with mike graham talk radio so this morning we hear that basically coronavirus uh, uh, deaths are down coronavirus infections are down coronavirus and hospital admissions are down and yet we are still trapped, it would seem, in a kind of miasmic nowhere, no man's land, where you can't actually go anywhere on holiday without having to quarantine yourself when you come back. It's almost impossible uh, to find a restaurant to go to uh, that doesn't have social distancing measures in place. You can't go to any nightclubs because they're not open. You can't go and watch any football because that would be too dangerous. You can only, in fact, wander about in a state of what can only be described as mild panic because you might catch it from someone who's not wearing a mask. Let's talk to John Rental, uh, the Independence Chief Political Commentator, because he is, of course, even though we don't always agree, a voice of common sense, and that's why we like to have him on. John, a very good morning to you. <laughs> good morning, Mike. Now, do you agree with me that we are at a sort of quite important fork in the road here, particularly for the Prime Minister? Because I do really think that this is one of those weeks where he's going to have to kind of, in, as we used to say in America, fish or cut bait. You know, he's got to make a decision on which way we are going to go for the next few weeks. And I'm not certain that he's got, as I said, the uh, uh, the fortitude to make the right decision. Well, I think it depends on the numbers, doesn't it? I mean, if I mean, you're absolutely right that we uh, we have seen several weeks in this country of uh, negative excess deaths. Mm. That means fewer people dying uh, than uh, you would normally expect at this time of the year. 
which is the best measure, as Chris Whitty once said, of uh, uh, of the effects of coronavirus, yeah. because it takes away all the arguments about whether people have died of or with coronavirus, um, and it's it's the most robust measure. Now, obviously, there are concerns about you know rises in cases in in the north of England, uh, but if those concerns go away, then I think the prime minister's decision is very easy. Then I think uh, then I think you're absolutely right. We do press ahead, and I think he will have the the so-called fortitude to do that because I think that is that is where his political instincts lie. Well, it's, uh, well, it's, what, it's what we keep being told. It's where his political instincts lie. But but the, the, the sort of the results of what he's saying would would suggest that that's not happening because in the end, you know, he has been incredibly cautious uh, and he's listening to to the Chris Whitties of this world, who after all didn't want to lift the uh, uh, the, the lockdown on pubs on July the fourth. Still doesn't really seem terribly enthusiastic about lifting the lockdown on anything really. Yeah, well, that's the problem, isn't it? Because um, the prime minister says he's guided by the scientific advice, and yeah. he has to be. Otherwise, he will be torn to shreds by the public inquiry that uh, that is definitely going to happen at some point. Mm. Uh, so he has to he has to do what the scientific advisers say. But I I think their advice, if if you're right, uh, and and the numbers are not as bad as people uh, people panicking suggest they might be. Uh, then I think the scientific advice will change, and I think the, the prime minister will be able to push as hard as he uh, as hard as he can to to open up the economy, which is not an abstract thing, as I as I've said to you before. I think, Mike, I, yes. you know, this is jobs and livelihoods. No, absolutely and, right, and it's not just about lo- those of us who enjoy going out for lunch and going out for dinner and going out to the pub. It's about the millions of people who are employed in that particular sector. It's about getting tourism back. It's about getting money spent. In cities, it's about you know uh, the economy being driven uh, rather than being subsidised. Yes, it's not it's, it's not a trivial thing, um, you know, people going out and enjoying themselves and having a good time because they spend money doing that right. and, and and they employ other people uh, in all those industries. Um, and and you're right, it's very important to get that back up and running. And there's some there's some very good uh, data on that that you know restaurants are starting to fill up. I mean, p- people aren't going to stay in hotels as much as they. As, as they were before. But, you know, a lot, of, a lot of the economy is is bouncing back and that's looking quite encouraging. Exactly right. But when you also look at the numbers, I think it's important that you look at the numbers of hospital admissions, for example, because it doesn't really matter, as far as I'm concerned, if the infection rate goes up, if the hospital admissions rate isn't going up, because what that then tells you is that there are people getting infected, but they're not actually getting very ill. Yeah, well, that's abs- absolutely right and a very important point to make. But the problem with with hospital admissions and even more with the deaths numbers is that they they're the last things that go up. I mean, you, you know, once once your once your infection spreads, then it takes it takes a few weeks for that to show up in uh, in hospital admissions, mm. and then um, and so you know you can't be sure. And at the moment, at the moment, hospital admissions are looking uh, are looking good, completely completely flat and declining. Um, and the death figures, as I said, are are, are negative excess deaths. But if if cases are rising and we can't be sure that they are, it could just be that we're testing more, uh, then, you know, you'd expect that to show up in in hospital admissions in a few days time. Yeah. Um, So we need. So, you know, I I mean, I think this will all be become much clearer uh, by the end of August. Well, let's see whether it does. But the, the, the thing that puzzles me, John, is that very important decisions are being made based on this information. Um, and the conversation that you and I are having doesn't appear to be being had in Downing Street, from what I can see. You know, they've stopped casinos from opening up. 
doesn't bother me. They've stopped bowling alleys from opening up. Also doesn't bother me in particular. Um, but, you know, um, there are businesses that need to be able to make some money. And they're being told they can't make some money because of some nebulous figure that's come out of Manchester. It just doesn't make any sense to me. Well, yes. I mean, I'm not I'm uh, like you. I'm not bothered about uh, casinos and, and, and bowling alleys particularly. Although, you know, as I say, you know, these, these seem like frivolous things, but they do employ a lot of people. Yeah. Uh, no, the most important thing um, from uh, I think is is getting uh, the schools back open in uh, in September or in, indeed actually next week in uh, yeah in, in Scotland um, and you know I think everything uh, everything hinges on that because I right. think once you get the schools back I think you do get so much so much of a of a return to normality I think uh, I, I think you 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 then got children being uh, being educated you stop the terrible terrible losses. Of of, uh, of of learning, mm. uh, and the parents can go back to work, or yes. at least they can get they can get more work done if they're working from home. I mean, either way, it doesn't matter. Yes, indeed. Uh, so but but I also but I also see um, you know a bit of a troubled landscape on that front as well because you've still got quite a few of the teaching unions suggesting that there might be a problem around safety. Uh, you've certainly got Anne Longfield, uh, the children's commissioner, sticking her oar in and saying, "Oh well, we might have to put uh, schools ahead of pubs." I'm not quite sure what the correlation is. I don't see why you have to shut pubs in order to let kids go back to school. Again, well, it doesn't make any sense if nobody's going to hospital. No, but the children's commissioner uh, is, is is on my side of this argument. I mean, she's absolutely right that you know, getting children back to school is one of the most important things. Uh, and if you know, it was it was Chris Whitty who suggested that, and and some other members of Sage suggested that you know, if schools uh, open, then pubs might have to close. Yeah, because you'd have to. You know, because what you, you can only have one or the other, and not both. Yeah, but who said that? I mean, you know, well, who died and made him boss? I mean, that's the thing. You know, this is a guy who was but, made plank of the week last week by us on account of that. Who who was that? Chris Whitty. Chris Whitty, yeah, Chris Whitty. Well, yeah, but I mean, you could you could call him call him what you like, Mike. But the prime minister is in an incredible bind because he has to follow the advice of the scientific advisors, and Chris Whitty is. Uh, is, is is one of the two top but Chris ones. Whitty is clearly uh, a killjoy, right? He's clearly a guy that doesn't enjoy anything in his life. He clearly wants <laughs> us all to sit about uh, worrying about everything. He doesn't he didn't want to no, lift the no. lockdown in July. He doesn't want to lift it now. I mean, what's wrong with him? I think that's uh, that's absurd and unfair. Uh, but also, that's the show. Politically <laughs> <laughs> unrealistic. The prime minister it has to do what the scientific advisors tell him, because uh, otherwise, as I say. Uh, you know, you'll have the likes of Yvette Cooper, who was, who was banging on about decisions taken months ago, whether they were right or wrong. Um, it, you know, sort of, uh, uh, doing her inquisitorial uh, judge, judge-led public inquiry act. Yes. And, you know, the, the public opinion will will obviously be on the side of any criticism. Yeah, but listen, made. John, I, 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 unlike most of these medical types, have got a pretty good memory, right? I remember asking medical people back in February and March why we were not quarantining people coming through airports. And I was told that the science produced by the scientists at that time said quarantining people uh, isn't worthwhile doing because in the end yeah. you can actually still catch the disease and not show symptoms and you can also still pass the symptoms on to other people uh, outside of quarantine anyway so there's no point in doing it. I'm now told by these people oh yeah but at that point when people were coming in from northern Italy which seems to be where we got all this from uh, coming back from holidays at half term the R rate was three to four so for every 10,000 people that came in they infected 40,000 people. People. The R rate now is less than one. 
Yes. But, and, and now yeah. they want to quarantine people. Yeah, well, uh, that that's another that's another whole a whole issue is is the is is the overreaction uh, of uh, of the scientific advice. I mean, Chris Whitty uh, and 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 Patrick Valance uh, realised possibly that they uh, they undercooked it in February and March, and now they're they're, they're very cautious. Well, maybe they should to... just resign and leave it to people who are now going to follow proper science. Uh, because why would you trust them now when they made such a, a cock up then? Well, no, I don't think they did make a cock-up. I think they was they, well, they were did. slow. No, come on. They were not slow. Yeah. They refused to quarantine people when it was very clear that they should have done. I mean, I'm not a scientist, but even I thought it was a good idea. not true. You are rewriting history just as much as anybody. No, I'm not. Anybody. I asked people at the time, why are we not quarantining people coming in from China, coming in from Italy, and even Tehran, which was one of the highest infected areas in the world at the time, we weren't bothering. No, because hardly anybody was travelling by then. I mean, That's, that's not the, true. That's no. Well, when, well, when are you talking about February? Well, well, we're talking yeah, February mean, and March. We're talking about when we knew about the disease, when we knew, we knew about the infection rate, and when we knew how deadly it was. And they refused to quarantine people flying in from northern Italy uh, who were all away on school trips there. Yeah, because it was already. I mean, the the thing is, the disease was already in in the UK by then. I mean, yeah, but the it quarantine was not in the big numbers it, it then later became. Well, yes, it, but, but that's the whole point about the infection is that it becomes big numbers once it's, okay. once it's here. All right, so if the, they're going to... All right, so... Quarantine would have been effective, Mike, would have been in, in, in January, right at the beginning of January, and nobody was suggesting it then because nobody understood uh, what we were up against. So, you know, I mean, all, all this is, is, is with the benefit of hindsight. Uh, and the problem is, you know, the, the scientists may have overcooked it now and being they may be being overcautious. But I mean, who can blame them? Because well, hang on. You've just said to me, right, you've just said to me there was no point in quarantining people because the disease was already here. Well, why are we doing it now then? Well, because the disease is under control here, because it's actually it? been to, to extremely low levels. Right. So, so, so why can't get... we open the bowling alleys then? Well, because you want to, you want to try and maintain the the, the, the suppression of of, of the uh, of the virus. Um, so you want to you, you want to do everything you can, and that includes stopping people, um, quarantining people when they come in. You realise what's going on here, John, don't you? Well, you're now you're, def gonna... you're now defending Boris Johnson against my attack on him, which I find quite <laughs> delicious. <laughs> well, there's nothing wrong with that. If the prime minister does the right <laughs> thing, I'll I'll defend him. I think I would. It's not so much that I'm defending him. I'm just trying to explain explain to you what the uh, what the pressures are on him. And, oh, I know uh, what the pressures yeah. are. But the is point he, is, is he... we cannot do this forever, John. We are at a point in which we now have to actually restart the economy properly because it's very clear that the first restart of the economy isn't working. It's chugging along no. at a very low rate. It hasn't reached second gear. There's nobody in the city of London. There's nobody on the trains. Nobody's going back to work. The civil service is a deadbeat disaster. And, and we're going nowhere. <laughs> No, that's the, none of that is true. I mean, the economy is actually bouncing back is it? Uh, reason, reasonably well. I mean, obviously, it's still it's still below uh, pre-COVID levels, but you know, it's 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 getting there. And you have to do it cautiously because you have to take people with you, and people are still incredibly fearful. Yeah, why though? These. You've just well, told me that the disease is under control. You've, we've just said, agreed that it's at its lowest rate of infection uh, throughout the entire year so far. What are they? What are people frightened of? Well, because they've been, they've had their their lives frightened out, frightened out of them. Oh, they've been frightened by, by the government and the government over over March and uh, the the early part of this summer. Um, people are very reluctant to to go back to normal, and uh, you know you can understand that. 
so it's going to take time. And I think, you know, once the numbers start to, you know, once once it's established that the disease really is under control, then I think you can t you can talk about opening up the economy. But, you know, while there are still uh, rising numbers of cases um, in some places, whether or not that is a result of increased testing or not, then, you know, I think but it's difficult. But to isn't that quite an important point to make, though, John? I mean, you say it and it is correct. But if it's as a result of the more testing being done, then that's what we absolutely need to know, as, as, as opposed to worrying that there's an increased spike because of some kind of activity. Because if it's not because of some kind of activity and it's only because of extra testing, then so what, is what I would say. Well, yes, but uh, it's going to take time to, to establish that for you know the facts to get across to people i mean you know you you may be you may you and i may be well ahead of uh, of public opinion on this or, or we may just turn out to be wrong uh, in which case I very much you know, doubt all, will, all will be revealed yes. um, in a few weeks time well i think also uh, you know let us be realistic let us look at the hospital admission rate and if the spikes that have happened in leicester uh, where i don't believe there was any more people in uh, 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 taken into hospital uh, in manchester in east lancashire in west yorkshire in all of those places if there is no um, extra business being given to the local hospitals then surely we can conclude that the infection rate may be rising but the actual yeah. virus is thinning out and is less virulent and, and not so dangerous as it once was. Well, I hope so. But I mean, there's no evidence for, for the virus becoming less less virulent. So, you know, in areas where there are more that more cases than in other places in the UK, it makes sense to to be vigilant. And I think that's that's the right approach, a local a local approach. Uh, and if you're right that, that hospitalizations don't increase over the next uh, week or two, mm. then I think public opinion will start to shift. And I think the, the prime minister will be. Able well, to I'll, I'll, let you, I'll let you into a little secret, John. Public opinion has already shifted. Public opinion is already where I am because that's what I reflect from the people that I speak to. People are not interested in having another lockdown. They're not interested in, uh, in being told to stay at home. They're not, a lot of them not interested in wearing masks. You know, a lot of people have moved but away from the support that they had for Boris Johnson just a month ago to now saying, you know, let's get on with it. No, I, I, I don't think I don't think that's the overwhelming view of the British public. The British public is still extremely fearful about this and, and wants wants to follow the advice, wants to wear a mask, wants to uh, maintain social distancing and is very disapproving of the minority who don't. And now, I think that is the, that is going to be the, the, the reality for for a while to come. Okay, well, we shall see. Uh, you and I will reconvene uh, in at least a week's time, and uh, you will no doubt agree with me then, and you'll stop defending <laughs> this Conservative government of yours. Thank you very much <laughs> indeed. John Rental, Chief Political Commentator at The Independent. Listen, I'm not one to bash the government. I'm not supposed to be here to do that. However, I find myself saying to Boris Johnson and his cohorts, and particularly that completely ridiculous bunch of medical advisors that he seems to have employed, who got it all wrong at the beginning and who now tell us that they're getting it right now. I mean, how on earth can you defend putting a quarantine on people coming back from Spain now when you didn't do it when people were coming back from China? I mean, just absolutely madness, isn't it? The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. But let's say a very good morning, uh, as it is Wednesday morning, to Mr Neil Oliver. Neil, a very good morning to you. Uh, good morning, Mike Graham. Good to see you. Thank you very much indeed for joining us once more. I was very, um, I've, I've very much felt for you when you wrote on Sunday that uh, one of your kids had said, you know, I just want it to get back to the way it used to be, because I think we've all had that conversation with our children, many of whom are quite confused, I think, by this whole kind of madness that we've been enveloped in for the last four months. 
Yeah, well, I mean, our youngest is, is 12 and the, the expression, the, the language that he used that particularly caught me was he mm. said he was homesick. Yeah. And I could see him down, you're a bit down in the mouth. And when asked why, he said, I'm homesick. And I said, what do you mean homesick? And he said, I'm, well, I'm homesick from the way things used to be. Mm. And I thought, you know, out of the mouths of babes, mm. you know, that was such a perfect, perfect uh, ex description of the feeling that I found that I had yeah. too. You know, you know, the past famously is a foreign country and my son was looking back at his own recent past and feeling homesick for the atmosphere that he realises now he once took for granted. Yes. And already at a young age, he's realising that that which we think will stay the same forever, that, you know, that ain't necessarily so. Right. Um, in terms of how we get back, how we overcome the homesickness, I can only really speak to what I do here where I live we, we live in Stirling uh, right in the center in the heart of, of Scotland and it's, it's a city technically but really it's most people would experience it as a town uh, and it's surrounded by wonderful countryside and landscape you know I can see the the beginnings of the highlands from from where I live and, and we're surrounded by green spaces and I have found and I've, I've helped I've tried to help the kids feel a sense of home uh, by, by just going back out and experiencing what's still available to us which is the landscape uh, the piece that I wrote on Sunday was about the idea of, of the staycation. Uh, and I think there's something very, very deeply important about reconnecting with and reminding ourselves of the unchanging nature of, of some of the, the landscape where we live. And I, I'm sure everyone can find their own way to do it. I, I do it here by going out and seeing the things that haven't changed. You know, there's a, there's a little bit of bedrock that I walk past on a walk that I do with our dog every day. And it's got carved into a, 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 a Neolithic cup and ring marks. Mm. Now, they were made, you know, four, 5,000 years ago by some farmer, and they're carved into the quartz dolerite that is the same rock as Stirling Castle sits upon. It's quartz dolerite material, and it's 300 million years old. Wow. And those cup and ring marks are 5,000 years old. And I, I, I consciously, I put my hand on it, and I, I reconnect, and I remind myself that whatever's happening now is a passing page in a very long story. Uh, and I go and I remind myself about the things nearby that haven't changed, which is the view to the hills, the rock, the bedrock, you know, the, and, the, and the landscape around me. And, and I know that it, it provides a, a degree of comfort to the kids as well, that you think everything's changing. Mm. You know, everything around us is so different. You think, well, yes, but you can still physically lay your hands on the things that are, that are eternal. Yes. And that yes, and, and I, 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 I think... That, I think that's right. But I suppose from the from the children's point of view, they're looking at the world through different eyes and they're seeing different things. And I guess they're seeing things disappearing um, as opposed to the rock that you talk about, which which won't won't disappear, hopefully, yes. uh, because it can never really be eroded uh, because it's maybe too hard. Uh, but it's almost as though something like Stonehenge is disappearing into the ground, I guess, you know. Yes, I'm, I'm hoping you're right. I mean, it's not enough just to, uh, you know, just to take solace in the, in the permanent parts of the landscape. Uh, we're very much hoping that when, our, you know, in Scotland here, the kids go back to school next week. It's, we're ahead of the, you know, we, we go back earlier than, than schools in the rest of the UK. Yeah. Uh, and we're very much hoping that as far as possible, the schools will have a, will have a, will be normal normal in, in, in inverted commas yeah and we wait to, we wait to see exactly how uh, you know how the, the school is going to operate you know the, the kids go to just the local high school uh, it's our youngest is just starting out in in first year of high school and mm. the other two are still there 
and we hope that, that they will be able to reconnect with normality in their school environment but, and we'll wait and see how that actually unfolds because I've said before I, I, while I appreciate the, the, the urgency and the necessity that with which the government have applied controls and, and restrictions on what people do it, it's having consequences it's having consequences and we're particularly concerned about how it's affecting our our kids yeah and well, exactly. And I thought it was particularly unfortunate. And I know this because my, my own 15-year-old is waiting for his GCSE results, which are going to come ridiculously at the end of August, even though they could have given them to him pretty much at the end of June, um, that they kind of marked everybody down up in Scotland for their exams because somehow they thought that was the right thing to do. I mean, surely of this year of all years, it was it was the year maybe to mark them up. Yes, like everyone else, I mean, I'm just kind of waking up to this story that's being reported variously across the across the media. I, I'm not quite, I'm not, I don't feel confident that I'm sure exactly what has happened. Mm. Or what has, I, I'm certainly aware of what's been alleged to have happened. Uh, yes, I, I, I agree with you. I would have thought, I would have thought that when, when so much has been out of people's control or out of the authorities' control, um, it, it would have been nice if the if the exam experience. Mm. For the kids who went through a completely disrupted exam period, you know, our, our daughter didn't even get to sit her hires right. her higher exams, and uh, the calculation about results had to be made based on prelims and you know and her your performance throughout the year. And I would have thought that the, the, to make that as easy uh, and stress free as possible, <laughs> it, it might have been that might have been a, mm. a, a, a an easier path to take. And this this idea that perhaps whole tranches of of the of the population, the school population have have been marked down, and that in schools overall results have been sort of downgraded. Mm. And I, I say again, I'm not exactly sure what has happened, far less what's supposed to have happened. Uh, but yes, it's it's lo and behold yet another anxiety and stress yeah. seems to have been uh, landed on the on the children. You know the, the people going through. I mean, when you're when you're 15, 16, 17, and you're going through your exams and you're thinking about the future. It's, that's so stressful anyway yeah. uh, and in this time of covid and quarantine and all the rest of it um a bit of reassurance for the for the kids might have been better than another layer of uncertainty yeah because i mean certainly what they're planning to do in england i don't know if they did the same thing in scotland was originally they were going to take their mocks as the guide basically but they were then going to take sort of their teachers assessments into account as well they've now decided to introduce the dreaded modeling um, which is the thing that seems to take us into so many bad places. You know, let's look into a model and let's kind of predict what would happen and let's then, uh, you know, um, proselytise on the fact that that is going to be the result when in fact it's just made up, right? And so I worry that the, the kids of the, of, of the teenage now generation that you and I have got haven't really got any faith in the system anymore because the system doesn't work. The system is kind of collapsing around them. And one of the things you need, I think, as a teenager, is a system so that you can rebel against it. They can't rebel against it because there isn't one. Yes, it's, it is just, they must be, you know, you forget, or I suppose it's, it's easy as, as adults to, to, to overlook how much even young children are actually assimilating and absorbing about what's going on. Hmm. And what our youngest said, you, you're suddenly pulled up short and you think, Oh, yeah, they really are in touch with what's going on. You know, I'm thinking that that he or they are oblivious, but they're not. Even at, even at 12 years old, mm. they've, they've absorbed a surprising amount of what is going on, yes. and, they, and, they, and they're, they're in this this atmosphere of uncertainty. Uh, and I think un uncertainty is the worst is the worst of times. Mm. It's when you even you want you want uh, 
confident, straightforward decisions to be made. Everything's so amorphous at the moment. Mm. Everyone is, is being made to live in a perpetual limbo, an amorphous cloud where yeah. we don't know, even after months of what has already passed, there's no sense of, of an end game and, and getting back to a normality. And that constant uncertainty is enervating and wearying and corrosive and it erodes everyone's confidence. While we all understand what the problem that the governments have been dealing with, nonetheless, there's millions of people out there who need a sense of uh, certainty and a confidence in, in the future. And it, it just one decision after another at the moment just seems to create more and more layers of uncertainty. Uh, and there, there will undoubtedly be consequences for that. People need establishments that they can trust. And for, for children, they need to be able to rely on the school, right. their, their education and their school uh, population and their, the atmosphere at school to be just normal. You know, our elder two are going back in one into sixth year, one into fourth year, and they just they just want normal. You know, that's what they're saying. Mm. They just want to go back in, see their friends, see their teachers, and to be educated the way they were before this all started yeah. to happen. And, and, hope so with that. and hopefully, you know, there are lessons perhaps that England can learn from Scotland, because as you say, Scotland goes back a little bit earlier than England does. Because at the moment, certainly in England, it's impossible to make any plans, because I'm not even, I'm not even sure that, that all of the teachers are, uh, are singing with one voice. I'm not even sure that all the schools are going to be open when they say they're going to be open in September. I mean, what's the, what's the Scottish situation? Are they, are they saying they're all going to open? It, it's, it depends. Like, like everyone, it depends what you read and, and what you listen to. And it, it, it's a slightly uh, uncertain, it's an uncertain situation without a doubt. Yeah. I think the, the atmosphere we seem to, what the message we seem to be getting is that they're hoping for the best and that they're hoping that as far as possible that the schools will go back in and function normally. There's minimal talk of, you know, social distancing or masks mm. or, or any of the other, you know, upsetting complications that, that have been talked about in the past. Uh, and we're we're desperate that that be the case, uh, that, that, that they go back in and catch a sense of, of normality and start to be able to work towards a normal, uh, a normal future. Mm. I just feel so vexed for them. You know, we understand the difficulties, but as far as possible, I just hope the kids can go back in and think, yes, this is the school that I recognise. Mm. And this is the way it used to work. I mean, they are talking about changes, without a doubt. You know, the, the way in which the kids will be fed at lunchtime and the one-way systems and, you know, staggered lunchtimes, you know, so that they're minimising the number of people that are gathered together in one place. But yeah. far, as far as possible, without a doubt, everybody needs to get back to... to Normal, normal, mm. proper normal. Yeah, but also if you think about the length of time that they've been off school, I mean, it's a bit like looking at, uh, I mean, when I, when I didn't see my dog for about eight weeks, we worked out that in a dog's world, that was about a year of, of a human life, you know, and it took a little adjustment. When I first went to see him again, um, it was about probably two or three hours before he was kind of normal around me. You know, he was kind of confused. He was, you know, quite affectionate, but not quite himself. And I think for kids to be back with their friends that they haven't seen for the best part of six months is going to be quite tough. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Big, big adjustment. You know, we're taking this, we're taking this for granted. I mean, in the, never mind the life of a dog, you know, in the life of a 12-year-old to mm. have been off school for half a year. Right. Just, just, just to go back in. And uh, and you know, getting up in the morning, we're already saying next week in the run up to the to the, the D day of going back to school, uh, they're going to have to do some dry runs and rehearsals about set alarms and getting up because yeah. otherwise 
you know, getting up at seven o'clock on that on that fateful first morning is going to be it's going to be a real chore. <laughs> well, I have the same conversation with my fifteen-year-old every weekend. Can you please try and get up a bit earlier this week? And then he says he will, and then he doesn't. I have to. I mean, I have to say that beyond the the, the short term, going back to school, I have had enormous, enormous reassurance from talking to our kids. I've got a a seventeen year old, a fourteen year old, and a twelve year old, and I have, we have long conversations with them. You know, because we're you know we're we're together all the time, mm. and yet there's an enormously reassuring common sense from them. Yeah, and you get and to to know that. Our, you know, this generation that are coming up, I don't know what you call them, are they generations? I've no Z idea. Or... I've, I've lost the plot on that. I don't know. I've lost, I've <laughs> lost the plot with all of that. But the, all I can say is that they talk in language and they have aspirations yeah. and a, a, an assessment of the situation that I recognise 100%. Mm. And I'm, I'm, not saying, I'm not saying that the objective is to produce children that are just you know, carbon copies of your own opinions <laughs> and aspirations. Right. All I'm saying is I recognise their attitude and they're incredibly pragmatic uh, practical and sensible, yeah. and and that that gives me that gives me huge reassurance. You know, my my eldest, my my daughter. You know, she this year will be thinking about you know what she's going to do with her future, mm. applying for university, maybe or or looking forward to the next stage. And the way she talks, sometimes I think, my goodness, it's like listening to the wisdom of the ancients. Yeah. Sometimes yeah. out of the mouths of babes, and and the twelve year old and the fourteen year old, they say things, and you think, yes, actually, here I am worrying about this world situation of which we are. And some of the things that the kids see, they cut through it like, mm. you know, like lemon juice through fat. Yeah. They just think, yes, that's right. Yeah. And we will get beyond this. And I, I get great reassurance from the wisdom of our yes, because it's there. I find my, my two teenagers to be far more tolerant than I am as well, which is probably not difficult, some might say. But, uh, but you know, they're very kind of worldly wise. We've travelled a lot, I suppose, which has helped and... You know, we've maybe given them the uh, uh, opportunity to think for themselves, but they're they're very tolerant, very kind of non-judgmental. It seems to me. Yeah, I what what seems to have happened with ours, but you know, I I've been the way I've felt about Britain, the British Isles, you mm. know, for the last twenty years on account of the work that I've done and the and the trips that I've done within these islands. Um, I am absolutely in love with. With the British Isles, it was in that column that you mentioned. I mean, I'm suffused yes. with a passionate love for this place, for the story of this place, and and our our kids uh, have definitely, uh, unavoidably, uh, uh, absorbed a healthy measure of that. Mm. And, and I think because I'll say to anyone that the, that Britain is the best place in the world to to live for any shortcomings that it might have. If you look back at the history and the lessons that we have learned from it and the aspirations that we've had in the past and that have been made manifest in the present, it's a wonderful place. Some of the earlier callers there were talking about, you know, you know, asylum seekers and, and, and migrants and people wanting to come here. And who could really put their hand on their heart and blame anyone for wanting to come here? Right. It's a wonderful place. And our, our children have, have absorbed some of that. And it's so important that people appreciate. I, I consider us for all the for all the travails that we're going through at the moment. I still maintain that people who have the opportunity to to grow up or, or live and raise a family in the British Isles are blessed people. Whatever other whatever shortcomings that there might be in the short term, this is a wonderful place. Mm. Well, people have been coming here as as, as, so, you, as you know better than most people, Neil. People have been coming here for for centuries, haven't they? 
Well, of, of course, and you cannot, we, you know, that causes stresses. Of course it does. People are, I think the government needs to be much more honest with people about numbers and, and, and exactly what, what plans are mm. uh, in relation to, to people arriving. You need to, you need to be honest with people about, about how many people are, are arriving and, and what the, what the plan is to, you know, to deal with that in the future. That there's an honesty that's required. But no wonder you, we ought really to take confidence from the fact that people, other people from other, you know, parts of the world want to be here. Yeah. You know, this is this place is still a is still a bright light. It still has a magnetic pull for people from all over the world, and you you want to be in the place. I suppose at the very least you want to be where everyone else wants to come. Yeah. That's there's great reassurance to be had from that. But but what is what is the responsibility of, of the generation that's in charge now is to maintain what has what it is that has attracted people for hundreds or for thousands of years. Mm. People have been drawn here because this is for the longest time now. This has been a place of democracy. It's been a place of uh, confidence in the police. It's been a place of where the institutions are to be trusted. It's where you've got you know rule of law. All of those things are the reasons why people want to come here and, and bless people. Who could blame people for wanting to come here? But parallel with that, of, of such importance, is the determination and the confidence to maintain what has been here. Mm. You know, you maintain the magnetic attraction. You want it always to be a place that people aspire to be. Yes. And that, that means maintaining the structure maintenance and conserving what has been here for for a few generations is paramount mm. and you know and you want to worry about the day when people look at, at the british Isles and think i don't want to try and get there right because it's not that, like it used to be because it's you know there's no longer an attraction there this place this blessed place that we've all you know you have a tendency to take it for granted its landscape its history its traditions it attracts, and long may that continue. May yes. this always be the place, the brightest light, where you know that people are drawn to. Yeah. And I don't care how sort of old-fashioned or but that makes me sound. I want to. I want always to be in the place that everybody else wants to come to. Mm. Absolutely right. This sceptered isle as some might say. Neil, thanks very much indeed. Neil Oliver there, uh, once again, with his very interesting, fascinating take uh, on what's going on uh, this week in the world of politics, in the world of the British Isles, um, and in your, chi in your children's world as well, because I think you've got to think about them even more now, particularly as it gets closer to the time when they go back to school, because they haven't been there for a very long time. Let's not forget that. Uh, and they're going to need to be kind of trained back into uh, the idea of going to school every single day. Because uh, I, for one, can tell you uh, that I think it's going to be a struggle for my two. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. 
PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Let's talk now, though, uh, to Jan Short, General Secretary of the National Pensioners Convention. I don't think she's terribly happy uh, with the BBC's decision to start charging money for a TV licence to people over the age of 75. Jan, a very good afternoon to you. Afternoon to you, Mike. Thanks very much indeed for joining us. Um, does the BBC really have any choice in this matter or have they been sort of handed um, a hospital pass, if you like? They were handed a poison chalice, as far as we're concerned, by the government. Uh, it is a government's responsibility to and be accountable for uh, social welfare for their citizens. It isn't the role of a broadcasting company. And I think... Having taken it on, we now see some of the chaos because they are not used to, and nor should they, have to deal with social welfare right. payment. Right. Because let's face it, this was a, a, an original kind of grant, I suppose you might call it, uh, that was handed to, to people over the age of 75 by a previous Tory government. Um, and now it's been taken away. Yeah, I think if you look at the most vulnerable uh, citizens in our society. They are those over 75. I mean, in that category, half of those uh, people are disabled. And there is an 18% level of poverty in that age group, as opposed to 11% for the rest of the population. So you can easily see how that will impact on their daily lives. Mm. Those that are just above pension credit limit who have no access to pension credit and the gateway that pension credit gives them mm. be the hardest hit. Um, and that looks at around at the moment to be around 50,000 plus people who will fall into poverty because they can't afford either to pay for their television license and their heating in the winter yeah. and the food and the increase on all the other bills that they need to pay. Right. And is the BBC absolutely firm on this, or are you hopeful that you can somehow persuade them at the 11th hour, if, it, if you like, to, uh, um, to, to renew? The 11th hour came and went uh, last week when right. we did a static, socially distance um, demonstrations at various uh, places in, in the country. Um, but we will not give in because this, this TV licence is part of a wider package of what is called universal entitlements that pensioners have. And pensioners are given these because the government will not sit down with us and talk about a decent living pension. It is cheaper for them to keep the state pension at the lowest level in the economically developed world and give us the universal entitlements rather than make it better for those older people. And you're talking about a generation that has worked all their lives. Uh, a lot of them have been uh, built this country after the war. Uh, they're veterans of the war. It wasn't long ago that uh, the prime minister and other government ministers were uh, hailing as heroes, those veterans from the Second World War. 
and saying that they could not thank them enough for what they'd done. And they were heroes and they would never be forgotten and they would always be respected. Yeah. And then they lose their TV licence. Yeah. It really is quite an extraordinary uh, move, really, isn't it? But, I mean, surely the BBC could find ways of saving this money in another way um, by, by shutting something down or by not producing uh, a very expensive television show or anything like that, really. I mean, I have to say that um, <clears throat> since, obviously, since 2015, when the agreement <clears throat> was made with um, George Osborne, the then Chancellor of the Exchequer, this is five years beyond that, and they have had the time to look at how they would make that uh, possible to, to retain the free TV licence. But also, I think the government has a role here, because what the government has allowed to happen by abdicating their own responsibility and accountability for social welfare is they've allowed an independent organisation to means test a universal entitlement and means testing is the most unfair, ineffective way of um, deciding what person should get what and what another person shouldn't get. Mm. So there are responsibilities on both sides, and we are arguing for the Prime Minister to sit down with the BBC and sort this out, as he promised in November 2019, mm -hmm. when he said that uh, it was crucial to retain the free TV license. No one over 75 should pay for the TV license. And he had his people in inverted commas uh, looking at how it should be funded. That promise has never been uh, come to fruition. Mm. And we want him to now to tell us whether that was a real promise, whether he really intended to do it or whether it was an election campaign issue. Um, and if he is, to sit down with the BBC and sort it out. For too long, older people have been in the middle. We've been pushed around between the government and the BBC, each blaming each other. It's time to sit down, put it right and sort it out. Yes. And I mean, given how much money is currently being given away by the government, um, how much money would you estimate this to cost on an annual basis? Um, the figure that came out uh, last year was something like 740 million, I think. Um, something like that can't be. Yeah, so less than a billion, in other words, which I know seems like it sounds like a lot of money, but in, in the current system that we seem yeah. to be operating, where they've freed up 2.1 billion uh, for us to pay for lots of people to cycle around the country, uh, you think they could find less than a billion uh, to help out some of our uh, more cherished individuals? Absolutely. I think, uh, you know, it was a little bit kind of um, shocking, if you think, to find out that uh, the Chancellor was handing out discount, uh, you know, half price meals to get. And we can understand you need to get the economy going. But as you said previously, I was listening to your um, thing on uh, London being very quiet. Yeah. It's very quiet in Newcastle where I live. Yeah. People aren't getting out and about. And I do understand that the economy has to get moving. Um, but as you say, what is more important? Is it more important to give people half price meals mm. or is it more important to give the most vulnerable uh, people in your society that have worked all their lives, paid all their lives, done everything they've asked for, a free TV licence? Yes, exactly right. And uh, how many people do you think uh, this will affect in the sense, Jan, that they can't afford it, that they basically won't be able to find the money? Uh, well, there's 3.7 million of us that uh, are not on pension credit. Um, out of that, uh, there are probably 
500,000 who are just above pension credit mm. where three pound a week if you're say you're just two pounds a week over pension credit as some people that i know are um, and your tv license payment is going to be just over three pounds a week right How do you find that money your rent's gone up your council tax has gone up food has gone up in the shops and now you're asked to pay uh three pounds out of very fixed income and it's very shortly you would be pushing yourself into poverty so those kind of people make decisions every day about what to buy what to pay their money on in the winter it's whether they have their heating on a bit longer or whether they um, cook something over their cooker a nice hot meal a pan of soup or something right. now they have to factor in a three pound license fee now, I'm reading a piece here from uh, City AM, which says the BBC will still pay the licence fee to single pensioners on a weekly income below £173.75 and couples on less than £265.20. Um, but there's a 16-page letter, an application form, that they have to yeah. fill out in order to prove that they haven't got any money, basically. Yeah. Um, I think that is ridiculous, sending out a 16-page letter to someone over 75. And that's not... Let's not forget the larger proportion of the over 75s are in the 80, 85s to 95 age group. Mm. Um, I couldn't imagine tackling a 16 page letter myself. Neither could I. Let alone someone in that age group. And I think it it's defeating the object that the BBC are trying to achieve. And I think at the end of the day, you'll find that most people will not engage with that. Right. But that's the other problem, isn't it? Because if they can do that, then that clearly means that there's a portion of this that they can afford. So why not just do all of it instead of being so kind of miserly, effectively? Yeah. I mean, you know, if you look at the 900, it's 900,000 people that the BBC know are already on pension credit. Right. Um, so those 900,000 people, they already know about. Um, and it, it was a bit of a ridiculous thing at the weekend where some people had been asked to produce their bank statements mm. uh, to prove that they were on pension credit. Um, they have half denied that. They were, they were saying, no, we won't use that um, except in exceptional circumstances. Right. They've not said what those exceptional circumstances are. Mm. So is it going to be the BBC making a judgment on people who they feel might not be telling them the truth um it is completely ridiculous so yeah. 16 pages uh, of a letter and an application form uh, there are people out there that can help but of course a lot of older people are still not going out right they're still remaining in their homes because they're not certain they're not safe and presumably for a lot of those people who don't go out the television is their kind of lifeline to the outside world as well absolutely it's more than that um we know of people who are pretty poorly mm. um, and don't go out a lot. They will get up in the morning and they don't feel very well. So they'll have a cup of tea, take their medication, and they will switch the television on. Mm. And they will watch their favourite programmes. And they will tell you that after a little while, they start to calm down. Mm. They feel less anxious. There's a thing in the corner of the room, the window to the world, they call it. It's a companion. Yeah. It's a friend. We know people that live entirely alone who don't have any family at all. And to take that away from them 
is very cruel uh, in their later years, and particularly if they're in the category of being, uh, you know, disabled, not mm -hmm. able to get out, don't see anybody. The television is more than a friendship and companionship and a means of entertainment. It's a lifeline to those people. And to take that lifeline away, we will see health uh, degenerating. There'll be more pressure on the NHS and GPs. Uh, most people have a, an understanding of where they're at with the television. It makes them less anxious. It makes them less worried about it. Um, take that away and you know, you're confining people to for the rest of their life in isolation mm. and loneliness. And that kills. Isolation and loneliness kills more people than smoking 20 cigarettes a day. Yeah, exactly right. Well, Jan, listen, good luck with it, and we'll see what we can do to help you out uh, getting the BBC and uh, the government around the table so that they can sort this business out. Jan Short, General Secretary of the National Pensioners Convention, quite rightly saying, you know, the BBC needs to find a way out of this, uh, as does the government. There should be no chance that elderly people over the age of 75 have to pay for a TV licence, particularly uh, if they are not in a position to do so financially. They shouldn't have to prove that they're not in a position to do so financially by filling out a 16-page document, should they? 0344-499-1000. Lots more of you uh, want to get on. We will talk to more of you. Lots of you are tweeting me as well uh, with what reactions you're getting back from some MPs who are answering questions, some who are not on the Circo front. We still haven't heard from Circo yet. Uh, we await their answers to our three questions that we put to them this morning. Uh, as of now, we don't have any answers. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Right now... Uh, it is that time of the day for some homeschooling. So gather your children around the TV uh, or around the radio if they happen to be listening rather than watching us on YouTube, on Facebook or on Twitter because it's now time to learn all about light years. We are, I'm delighted to say, once more in the company of Greg Smy-Rumsby, uh, our favourite space expert from astronomynow.com. Greg, a very good, morning, very good afternoon to you, I should say. Good afternoon, Mike. Almost yeah. travelled back in time there just by accident to go to the morning. But uh, here we are uh, in the afternoon. Uh, light years is something that people talk about a lot, um, but I'm not entirely certain they understand what a light year really is and why we need to know what it is. Well, you cannot use kilometres uh, or miles, for that matter, in, in to measure astronomical distances because they're just huge. Mm. The distances are huge. You'd have an awful lot of noughts to deal with. So astronomers tend to use light years. So it's the distance that light travels in one year, right. which is 9.46 trillion kilometers. You can see why there's, there's the not interested in using kilometers. So for example, I'll give you an idea to, to shorten all the measurements down. If we want to measure the distance to the moon in light years, yes. it's actually seconds it's about 1.2 seconds mm. so light from the moon reaches the earth in about 1.2 seconds right. if you want to go to say uh jupiter it's around about three quarters of an hour uh, by the time you get to pluto it's about four and a half hours by the time you get to the nearest star it's still going to take you about 4.2 years traveling at the speed of light and there is a wonderful website which people can explore called if the moon were one pixel, and it's a wonderfully interactive website, mm. if the moon were one pixel, and it actually shows you traveling in the solar system at the speed of light. It is incredibly tedious, mm. despite the staggering speed light travels many times around the Earth in one second, just to get to, say, Mars still takes 
many, many minutes. It's, it's quite amazing. So, I mean, if you were sitting in a spaceship travelling at the speed of light, would it be like that scene in Star Wars, you know, when they head for, um, you know, warp speed or wherever it is? Yeah, I suppose so. Um, I mean, we can't reach the speed of light because E equals mc squared mm. so the equation there has to balance so whatever right. you put on one side of the equation has to be balanced with the other side of the equation even if you rearrange all the little factors you still have to have a balance so if you want to increase your speed to the speed of light unfortunately infinity plays havoc with your mass mm. in other words you really do increase in mass right. it, it's amazing as you travel faster and faster and faster you take on bulk, and then eventually you're the size of the universe, and you can't wow. move. That's, that's amazing. It. That's the end of the story. Now, yeah, what about is. what about if if people were going to try? And, I mean, you have put it in perspective already. I realise this by saying that the moon is a few seconds away. But what would you be uh, if you were, in fact, say, trying to measure in light years the distance from here to Glasgow? Yeah, it would be fractions of a millisecond. So I can't it's that it it's that head. quick. Oh, that's quick. Oh, that's very quick indeed. Yeah. Very, very quick indeed. I mean, the reason we're, we're communicating now, Mike, without any obvious hesitation, I'm saying something, you're pretty much hearing it at exactly the same time mm. as my mouth is uttering the words. So we're not, we're not aware of a delay on the Earth. It's not until we start moving away from the Earth, which is going to be critical to those astronauts that will eventually go to the moon, which takes, as I say, just a little over a second, which mm. isn't too troublesome. I mean, at the Apollo era, when they were walking around the surface of the moon, they had a little tiny beep, a little delay thing. Uh, but of course, when you get to Mars, you're talking about half an hour. It could be as much as half an hour. Right. I mean, that is a long time. But of course, Mars does sometimes get a little closer to the Earth, which will uh, help help out the, the distance. But it's no good saying we've got a fire. How do we deal with it? Because by the time you get an answer, you, you, you've already burnt the building down. You've already so burnt the building good. down, yeah. And so, I mean, aside from um, the, our mass that increases while travelling at the speed of light, does everything else mass-wise increase? For oh example. yes, absolutely. So, if, absolutely. so if you had a so if you had a spaceship that was unmanned, traveling at the speed of light, that would also increase in mass, would it? Now there there lies a story because Breakthrough Starshot, uh, which is all part of the Breakthrough program, uh, has envisaged that we could build a tiny, weeny little spacecraft, and I do mean tiny. It has to be tiny in order to reach the velocities they're talking about. Yeah. It's about the size of my thumbnail, and it's about as thin as well. And it's like a circuit board, a printed circuit board. But in there will be power systems, uh, avionics. It'll have guidance. It'll have computer processing. It'll have cameras. It'll have all, all sorts of things. And they're going to put a whole flotilla of these up into orbit around the Earth. And then on their little handkerchief size panels, if you want to call them panels, they will beam... Uh, lasers and they will go from the, the basically zero speed up to about one fifth the speed of light in mm. 10 minutes in 10 minutes which means they could possibly get to the nearest star in about 25 years or so right it's fascinating and who discovered um light speed or the light year weirdly long before the speed of sound uh, it was a chap by the name of ole romer and mm. uh, romer was a quite a nice chap. He gave us uh, strange me mechanics for following the stars. We still use, use those in the German mounted telescopes today. Uh, but Ole Romer discovered the speed of light because he noticed that the moons of Jupiter were always displaced, depending on the exact position they were placed around Jupiter. And it suddenly occurred to him that the reason why there was always this slight disruption to the possible uh, predicted calculations was because Jupiter uh, can sometimes be on the other side of the sun 
uh, compared to the Earth, and so we view it either at sunset or sunrise, mm. in which case the moons can be up to 16 minutes wrong because it's the diameter of the Earth's orbit, which is, of course, eight minutes times two. So it's 16 minutes wide. Of course it is. How do you keep all this information in your head, Greg, is what <laughs> I would ask you next. So it's extraordinary. It's, most of it is garbage, but it comes. To get, hopefully it comes together in a nice, comprehensive way. No, it really does. And I mean, just in terms of the measurement, I suppose, of things, um, you still have a measurement of infinity, don't you? Which, which is basically anything beyond what you could measure. You're absolutely right. The largest number, I think, is the Googleplex. Yeah. Um, but yeah, absolutely. Um, once you get beyond, you know, increments, you have to start using inf infinity itself mm. uh, because it, it, you can't describe it any other way. And the universe is 13.8 billion light years ago, which means light has been traveling from the very beginning towards us, towards us for 13.8 billion years. Mm. And yet that is not the end of the story. Because the universe we see at the extreme limit is basically the, 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 the huge explosion, I suppose, if you want to call it, that brought the universe into life, um, has moved away from us because the universe is expanding. So that 13.8 is just almost fictional because the real universe could be as much as 96 billion light years across or, as some astronomers theorize, that it could be infinite. Wow. And then I, I just don't know where to go after that, to be honest. I mean, infinity <laughs> is, I, I does not compute with my brain, I'm afraid. I mean, I have enough trouble getting to Sussex at the weekends uh, with all the traffic we've got. I mean, the idea of trying to get across an infinite universe it just doesn't bear thinking about. There is another measurement which astronomers use, which is parsecs, oh, which yeah. is, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's another step beyond light years. But it's, it just uses the brightness of certain stars and use that as a measure. It, it, yeah, it. There we are. Light years is about is about the limit okay. right, in normal parlance. Well, that's fascinating as ever, Greg. Thank you so much for taking the time to explain it to us. Greg Smyre Rumsby from AstronomyNow.com on everything you need to know about light years. Who came up with them, uh, where they are, how long it takes you to measure light, how fast you can go, the distance. It's absolutely fascinating stuff. Talk radio across the UK, online, on DAB and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio.